Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. If this is your first time listening, welcome. If you're a longtime listener, welcome back. Trip Hacks DC is a podcast, YouTube channel, and tour company. My goal is to give you the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for exploring Washington, D.C. If you want to check out the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphacksdc.com slash podcast. And while you're over there, you'll find info about guided tours and more. This is going to be a solo episode, just me, on a topic that I've been reluctant to talk about up until now, which is how I travel. The reason I've been reluctant is because I never really wanted Trip Hacks DC to be about me. I wanted it to be about you, someone who's traveling to DC and wanting to learn the tips and hacks to make sure you have a great time. That said, in the fall, I launched Trip Hacks DC Insiders, which is an exclusive group of the biggest Trip Hacks DC fans. It's kind of like Patreon, but it's on YouTube. And one of the perks of being an insider is that you get access to small group live streams with me to ask any questions about an upcoming trip or about anything travel related that's on your mind. And one interesting thing I noticed was that insiders really wanted to ask me about how I travel when I go to other cities. So I pulled the insiders group and said, if I made a podcast episode about how I travel, would that be good content? And the answer was overwhelmingly yes. Now, that's probably a biased sample, as TripHex DC insiders were the ones asking for this initially, but it did give me the courage to decide to go ahead with this episode. One thing that's true is that I'm a tour guide and someone who helps people travel to my own city, so my perspective is different from people who are more professional travelers. For example, I've had some guests on this podcast, like Jocelyn Walters and Mark Walters and Chris Rainey, who I would all call professional travelers. They go on a lot of trips and have a lot of great insights because of how much travel they do. I like to travel, don't get me wrong, but because being a tour guide means I need to be here, especially during the peak tourist seasons, I travel a lot less than they do. If I'm lucky, I'll do one big international trip each year and maybe a few smaller domestic trips, though in fairness, I haven't done much of either since the start of COVID. In this episode, I'm going to reference a lot of trips that I've taken, So you're going to hear about a lot of places that are not Washington, D.C., but I'll do my best to try to apply what I've learned in other cities back to D.C. One thing that's a lot different about podcasts than other forms of social media is that there's no built-in feedback mechanism, but I'm always curious to hear what everyone likes about these episodes. So you can always head over to TripHacksDC.com and click the contact button at the top of the screen, and you can send me any feedback that you have about the podcast, or send me a tweet or an Instagram DM, or leave a YouTube comment. I personally read all of them. Now, as far as the agenda for this episode, I want to walk you through all the nitty-gritty details about how I travel. First, I'll cover when I travel, then how I do basic research about my destination, then I'll cover how I pick flights and how I pick my hotel, then I'll cover how I decide what activities I want to do, and because, of course, I'm a tour enthusiast, which tours I take when I travel. And then at the end, I'll do my best to tie everything back together because I know this is going to be a lot of info. Okay, so let's zoom out and think about when to travel before we get into any of the destination-specific details. 
When you travel is actually a lot more important than a lot of people give credit for. Most people don't realize how it's important because if they only go to a destination once, they kind of assume that destination is always that way, no matter what month it is. However, I know that's not right. And I can tell you this because visiting Washington, D.C. in the middle of July is a whole lot different experience than visiting in the middle of January. There are pros and cons to each, but the point is, it's different. My absolute favorite month in Washington, D.C. is October. But October is not the busiest month, and that's because the reality is that many of us, especially Americans, don't pick travel dates based on the destination. We pick based on what we can squeeze into our lives. For me, I typically take my big international trip in January or February. Why? Because that's when Washington, D.C. tourism is very slow, so there's not a big opportunity cost for me not being here. On the other hand, I'd be a fool to take a vacation during the National Cherry Blossom Festival because that's when tons of people are here, and the cost of losing out on that is very high. In fact, the last three times I've traveled to Europe was during either December, January, or February for this reason. Most people would not think of these months as the best time to go to Europe. There are pros and cons, and I try to fully understand those going in. For example, a pretty massive con is that there's very little sunlight in Europe around the winter equinox. We sometimes gripe about the fact that in D.C. it's completely dark by 5 o'clock in the winter, but over there, it might be dark by 3 o'clock, depending on exactly where you are. Some people think traveling during the winter is undesirable because it's too cold. I don't think that's true at all. Ski slopes and mountains are packed during the winter months. Nobody is skipping a ski trip to Colorado in the winter on the grounds that it's too cold. As long as you bring the right clothes and plan accordingly, most destinations can be enjoyable year-round. Another thing to consider is that not all tourist sites are open year-round. Have you ever been to Italy in August? If not, don't go to Italy in August. You'll find a whole bunch of signs on shop doors that say something like, Closed for summer break, see you next month. In the U.S., we don't take extended breaks like this. The idea of closing a store for more than a day at a time seems unfathomable. But that's the culture over there, so you want to make sure you know what you're getting into. Now, another reason why when you travel is so important is because hotel rates are variable. On some dates, hotel rates are dirt cheap, and on other dates, sky high. I studied economics in college, so supply and demand is burned into my brain. It's the lens through which I view the world. But I know a lot of people haven't studied economics and don't think like this. For some things in life, the price is the price. When you buy does not matter. But for something like a hotel, when you buy absolutely does. Back to one of my winter Europe trips. The first time I ever went to London was over the Christmas holiday. This wound up saving me a ton of money. Why? Because no one, and I mean no one, takes a business trip to London over Christmas. Since London is a business travel hub, when no business travelers are around, demand for hotels drops significantly. I am sure that I would have paid at least double for my accommodation on that trip if I had visited at nearly any other time. Another example is a trip to Las Vegas I took with my family in 2016. Las Vegas hotel rates can swing wildly as well. I think that most people realize that Las Vegas is a weekend destination. You are going to pay more for a room on Friday and Saturday night than any other day of the week. And this is doubly true for holiday weekends. 
So Memorial Day, Labor Day, if Independence Day falls on a weekend, look out. So when I went to Las Vegas in 2016, my family planned to all arrive and meet up on Labor Day. All the weekend partiers had checked in on Friday, and they were checking out as we were arriving. And this is important. Las Vegas hosts a ton of conferences and conventions, but conference organizers do not schedule them to bump up against holidays. So by arriving on Labor Day, we got rewarded twice. First, by staying on less popular weekdays, and for staying a week when no conferences were happening. The difference in price between staying over Labor Day weekend versus staying the same number of days right after the weekend was almost triple. And since my family isn't into the party scene and didn't need that holiday party atmosphere, this worked out perfectly fine. Okay, now I've talked quite a bit about hotels, and I'm going to have a lot more to say about how I pick a hotel and how I book it soon. But before I book anything, I make sure to do basic research about my destination. This is an extremely important step, but one that I found people often do last, not first, and that's a huge mistake. You want to make sure you do it first, because having a solid understanding of the place you're visiting means you will make better choices about which flights you take, where you stay, and what activities you do. The first place I start my research, as silly as this sounds, is on my favorite website, Wikipedia. What I'm trying to do on Wikipedia is get a very broad overview of the city I'm visiting. And on Wikipedia, you'll get information like geography, climate, demographics, what the major economic sectors are, and usually a little bit about local culture, food, and some of the major landmarks. I do not buy paper guidebooks anymore, the Fromers or the Lonely Planets. I think those are a bit of a relic of the past, and print books get out of date so quickly. You can buy one to put on your bookshelf as a trophy to show off all your various travels, but for the information, I would skip it. I also do not go on Google and type very generic queries like Washington, D.C. Travel Guide, because I'm really sad this is the case, but a lot of stuff nowadays is produced by content farms and then overly optimized for SEO to show up at the top of those search results. A few months ago on Twitter, I called out a particularly egregious Washington, D.C. travel guide that had a picture of the Washington State Capitol in Olympia, Washington as the headline image. It said the state capitol was a great landmark for visitors. Good grief. No one who lives in Washington, D.C. would ever in a million years mistake the U.S. Capitol for the Washington State Capitol. But someone working in a content farm in another country who typed Washington Capitol into a stock photo website and didn't know any better would. No editor would ever let that slide. But a lot of these articles are not edited for content. If they're edited at all, it's copy editing and editing for SEO optimization. For that reason, any site you find on Google that's not a trusted brand is out. A place I do like to go for basic research is YouTube. Maybe I'm a little biased here because YouTube is a primary way that I get out info for TripHacksDC, but what I like about YouTube is that when you find a city-specific channel that you like, you really feel a sense of connection with the host that you don't feel using other mediums. You know that the person actually lives in the city and isn't just cranking out articles from another country. That said, there is content farm videos on YouTube too, so be careful. There is a lot of junk out there. Now, some cities have way more YouTube content than others. In the U.S., New York City has more than you could ever wish for. Las Vegas has a bunch of very knowledgeable folks. I know other cities do as well. 
the one thing you really have to understand about these YouTube channels is that everyone is trying to sell you something. Sometimes that thing is obvious, sometimes it's not. I'm a tour guide, so I'm trying to sell you on the idea that it would be fun and worthwhile to take a Trip Hacks DC tour. I think that's pretty transparent. Other YouTubers might be trying to sell you an itinerary, or an audio guide, or they might be trying to take a different approach entirely and get advertisers to put a bunch of commercials in their videos. A lot of travel YouTubers make ads for companies that sell luggage or computer VPNs or other travel-adjacent items. I'm not necessarily opposed to this, but when someone has a lot of ads and commercials baked into their videos, you have to start to take their suggestions with more of a grain of salt, especially if their advertiser is one of the things they're saying you ought to do. When I took a short trip to New York City last year, I devoured a whole bunch of local videos on YouTube, on channels like Here Be Bar, Urban Caffeine, and The Megan Daily. Not only did they help me learn about the city, but they got me really excited about visiting. When you're on YouTube, you'll also find plenty of travel vlog-style videos. This is an entire industry in itself, and some of these creators are very good. Walter's World, for example, I think is excellent. I've collaborated with them on several projects. Yellow Productions as well. I've had Chris on this podcast and hope to do some more collaborations with him in the future. However, I hate to say this, but a lot of travel vlogs honestly just aren't that good. Actually, let me rephrase that because I don't want to make it sound like these videos aren't worth watching. They are fun and entertaining to watch. Some of them have incredible cinematography, and it's very impressive how skilled some of these folks are at filming and editing. But for planning your own trip, they often are not a great resource. I've watched more of these types of videos than I'm willing to admit, because every time there's a new Washington, D.C. travel video, I watch it to see if there's anything new or interesting. The reality is, a lot of these vlogs are just copies of each other. I frequently see the same places, the same restaurants, the same itineraries, but rarely anything new or unique. There's actually a simple trick you can use to find out if the advice of these travel vloggers is any good. I think you need to be naturally more suspicious of their advice, because when you don't live somewhere, how are you really qualified to give advice about that place, you know? So what you need to do is go down in the comment section, and if you see a bunch of comments that are like, I live in this place and everything you said in the video is spot on, then you know the advice is legit. If you find a bunch of comments from locals calling out things they got wrong, or even you just don't find any confirmations, then I would take that video with a grain of salt, or at least get a second opinion. Another thing you can do is see if they made a video for the city where you live. Watch it, and if it's good advice, then you can probably trust them. If it's not, then that probably speaks for itself. Okay, there are a few more places I want to mention that I know some people use to plan travel but I don't personally use or recommend. The first is Facebook groups. The reason I don't like these is because a lot of times it's the blind leading the blind. A lot of tourists posting questions and other tourists answering them. Depending on the last time the person answering has even been to the destination, their advice might be well-intentioned but out of date. Destinations change way more quickly than people realize these days. And another little secret about Facebook groups is that a lot of them are run by people or companies that have an agenda. They want to sell you something. That could be a guidebook, it could be an audio tour, or it could be something else. A lot of times these groups will have rules against selling, which is good in the sense that you don't want a bunch of spam all over the place, but what sometimes happens is that this rule is used to essentially delete or remove any recommendation that competes with whatever the ringleaders are trying to sell you. 
So for those reasons, I stay away from Facebook when I'm planning. Another website I do not use is Reddit. City subreddits tend to be not very welcoming places for tourists. And I'll caveat that by saying how unwelcoming depends entirely on the city, and some are better than others. On the DC subreddit, I see people asking basic tourist questions and getting a bunch of snarky or troll responses all the time. For example, in DC, there's a dingy dive bar called Dan's Cafe. This bar's claims to fame are that they serve shots out of squirt bottles and that their bathroom has been cleaned in probably never. But there's also an inside joke on the DC subreddit to recommend it to people who don't know any better. So you might see a post and someone asking for recommendations for their family with two small kids, and the first bunch of responses will all be Dan's Cafe. Obviously not very helpful, and if the person doesn't double-check, potentially a very bad situation. I tried posting on Reddit when I started DC, but I quit pretty quickly because honestly, a lot of the advice for tourists over there wasn't good, and I eventually gave up because there's too much noise and the general Reddit culture is not really one that's friendly to visitors. One more place I do go for basic research is Google Maps. I do this because I have a visual brain, especially when it comes to maps. So this step is absolutely crucial for me. I open up Google Maps and just start looking at how the city is laid out. I try to identify where the main points of interest are. For example, in New York City, I'll look for Central Park. I'll look for Times Square. I'll look for the World Trade Center site. In Paris, I'll look for the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, and the Louvre. These help me get a sense of where everything is sort of located in relation to everything else. If the city has public transit, like New York or London or Paris, I'll try to get a subway overlay on my Google map. This helps me understand how everything is connected. Are the main points of interest on the same line, on different lines, etc.? Once I've gotten to this point, one of the next things I'll start to look at are flight schedules. Not booking a flight, just looking at the schedules and the prices. One mistake I see people make all the time is the first thing they do is book all the flights. They find an amazing deal, and they lock themselves into dates that later turn out to be less than ideal. I get that finding one of those super cheap airfares is a major dopamine hit. It feels like you just won the lottery or something. But the key is that you have to think of airfare and accommodations as a team. What I mean by that is, say you look at flights and find an amazing round-trip fare the first weekend of the month for $100 versus $200 the rest of the month. But it turns out that because of a big event, hotels in your destination are way more expensive that first weekend than any other weekend. And taking the $200 flight would actually have saved you money at the end of the day. I have the perfect example of this from my own travels. Several years ago, I was planning a trip to San Francisco. I found an amazing airfare and thankfully did not rush to book it because I discovered that the day I had picked to arrive was actually the last day of Dreamforce, the huge Salesforce conference they host in San Francisco every year. Most hotels were completely sold out for that night, and the ones with rooms had outrageous rates, like $800 a night for a mid-range hotel. If I had rushed out and booked that flight before checking on hotels, I would have been screwed, and either left scrambling to find some alternative accommodations or eating the massive hotel bill for that first night. But in this case, I kept my calm, adjusted the dates of the trip over by one day, and all was okay. Yes, I did have to pay more for the flight, and I didn't get the bragging rights that comes along with being able to say I got that amazing fare, but in the end, it was for the best. One cool thing about living in D.C. 
is that we can get to lots of different places either by air or by train. Earlier this year, Amtrak was trying to lure customers back, and they ran some incredible sales. The kind of sale that seemed too good to pass up, especially after not traveling for a year, I wanted to get back to New York City, one of my favorite places. I knew I wanted the trip to be a weekend in September. So first, I checked the train schedule and prices, and found that the price would be roughly the same no matter which weekend I traveled. So then I started researching hotels, and based on that, it became clear that the last weekend of the month had the most availability and lowest rates. So that's the weekend I picked. As far as researching flights, I usually start with Google Flights. I feel like this is the best tool for getting a general sense of flight schedules and prices. But whatever flight I find, I always leave Google and book it directly on the airline's website. Episode 32 of this podcast was all about why you should book direct when you travel, so I won't go in-depth on that now, but I highly recommend that episode if you haven't heard it yet. Now, there are quite a few variables I consider when choosing a flight. They're all important, and I think people get into trouble when they ignore some or all of them. The first variable is whether the flight is nonstop or has connections. I always want a nonstop flight when possible. Even connecting flights with relatively short layovers, say an hour or so, can add a substantial amount of total travel time. When I'm flying from D.C. to Los Angeles, for example, a nonstop flight might be five-ish hours, and a connecting flight could easily be double that or more depending on where the connection is and how long the layover is. The second variable I care about is what time of day the flight departs and arrives. Generally speaking, I want to leave home in the morning and arrive at my destination around lunchtime. And then, on the last day, ideally I want to depart around lunchtime and get home around early evening. The reason for this is that it lines up with hotel check-in and check-out, and it gives you an opportunity to explore your destination on the first day and lets you relax a little on the last day. If you take the last flight of the night, for example, and arrive at your destination at midnight, you still have to pay for a hotel that night, but you lose out on an entire day of exploring. As for coming home, I prefer not to take a late flight, because checkout might be at noon, and yes, any decent hotel will hold your bags even after you've checked out, but if your flight is at, say, 6 p.m., you check your bags at noon, then head out to do something, you've got to go back to the hotel at 3 get your bags, then go back to the airport. I find it's easier to just check out at noon and head straight to the airport. The third variable I look at is which airports am I using? Washington, D.C. has three airports. They are not all equally convenient. Many cities have multiple airports. New York, Dallas, Houston, Los Angeles, Chicago, and that's just in the U.S. The less convenient the airport you choose, the more time and money you need to spend getting to and from Los Angeles is one city that has a lot of flight options from D.C. Say I have two choices. One is a flight from Dulles to LAX on United, and the other is a flight from Reagan National to LAX on Delta. In this case, the Delta flight is way more convenient, since Reagan National is closer to downtown and where I live. Or let's use an airport on the destination side. Last time I went to Dallas was for a conference at a downtown hotel. I could fly on American from Reagan National to DFW or on Southwest from Reagan National to Love Field. In this case, the Southwest flight is more convenient because Love Field is way closer to downtown Dallas than DFW. The fourth variable I look at is, which airline am I on? I will fly most, but not all, airlines. I won't fly on Spirit. 
I try to avoid Frontier unless there's no other option. I don't love United, but I will use them. And then American, Delta, Southwest, Alaska, and JetBlue I think are all fine. I used to have the most loyalty to Southwest because they historically had way more flexibility than the competition, and that's still true to some extent, but now I'm less loyal because I just travel less. And that's just the U.S. domestic airlines. International is a whole other ballgame, with some international airlines perfectly fine and others I wouldn't touch. And then the last variable, of course, is price. This is the one that many people focus on heavily, if not exclusively, but that I try to look at holistically within the context of everything else. Because if all you do is go on Google Flights, search your route, and then sort lowest to highest price, you might wind up on one of the last flights of the night that gets you in at midnight. Or you might end up using a faraway airport that costs so much in taxi fare that it cancels out any savings on the fare itself. The really unsatisfying truth about flights is that figuring out which is best is as much art as it is science. The cheapest flight might not be the best option. In fact, many times it won't be the best option. A connecting flight may be a better option than a nonstop flight if it uses convenient airports rather than faraway ones. A flight on an airline that isn't your favorite might be a preferable option if it gets you in at a reasonable time versus your favorite airline that doesn't. I think people focus way too much on the price of airfare and it often leads to less than desirable outcomes. But it makes sense. I see friends post on Facebook every once in a while about how they got a great fare to Italy for a super low number of dollars. Nobody ever logs onto Facebook to brag about how they got a flight at an acceptable price that got them in at a great hour and didn't have any connections. So price is important, but it's only one of five variables. So make sure to put it in the right context when you're making the decision. Okay, so that's flights. Now let's talk about accommodations, which is typically the other big expense on a trip. Generally speaking, I like to stay at mid to higher end hotels. I try to avoid the low end hotels and motels. I also don't really stay at very high end hotels because in many cases it feels like you're really just paying for a nicer lobby. I also don't stay at Airbnb for reasons that I will describe in much more detail in a few minutes, so stay tuned. Currently, I do not have loyalty to any hotel brand. Back when I traveled more, I was very loyal to Kimpton Hotels. I loved Kimpton Hotels. I loved their quirky vibes, their reward program, the social hour every evening, the secret passphrase that you could drop a check-in for a special reward. The biggest disadvantage was that it was a small chain and not every city had a Kimpton Hotel. So while there were a handful of them in D.C., some cities had none at all. Of course, all good things seemed to come to an end. IHG acquired Kimpton back in 2014. Whenever a big corporation acquires a beloved small brand, they always promise nothing is going to change. But when you've been around long enough, you know that's not true. At least not in the long run. So while I'd stay at a Kimpton hotel again, given the choice, I wouldn't seek them out either. This is all to say that if you are loyal to a particular hotel brand, it actually makes the process of choosing a hotel a lot easier because you can eliminate all the hotels that aren't in that brand. Now, since I am not loyal to any brand, the tool I prefer to start my search with is Google Maps. That might seem surprising because Google Maps is not a travel website like Kayak or Hotels.com, but they have been slowly adding a lot of travel functionality over the years and in my opinion, it's actually quite good. The other reason I like Google Maps is because I strongly believe that location is absolutely critical when it comes to choosing a hotel. It's really important for me that the hotel is not just a place to sleep, 
but also a sort of base of operations for my various activities. And remember, since one of the first things I do when researching a new city is study the map, I already know which areas I want to consider staying in versus which ones I don't, and that helps immensely. I personally think the visual approach is the way to go, because what happens is, if you go onto a website like Kayak, type in a city, and then sort from lowest to highest priced, what inevitably happens is that the ones that show up as lowest priced are way out at the airport, or they're in a completely inconvenient part of town. To me, it's easier to see where everything is on a map, rather than in a list that I have to cross-reference back against the map to see where it is. Now, when it comes to establishing a base of operations, there are a few things about the location that are important to me. First, it should ideally be close to a lot of major tourist sites. In many cities, this is downtown or the city center, but not necessarily. In a big city like New York or London, the financial district is probably not the best place to stay. The base of operations should be close to places to eat and drink. On a given trip, I'm probably going to identify a few must-do restaurants and get reservations for those, but most meals are probably going to be on the fly. On my trip to Edinburgh, Scotland a few years ago, my hotel was near dozens of places to eat. So one night, I felt like vegetarian food and got vegetarian food. Another night, ramen sounded good, and there was a ramen place right around the corner. Similarly, if you're interested in any kind of nightlife, you don't really want to travel long distances for it, because nightlife is, by definition, late at night. So similarly, on that trip to Edinburgh, there was a bar literally across the street from my hotel that I went to a couple of times. They had live trivia on one night of the week, and I wound up going to that twice. I didn't win, but it was a hoot playing along and getting heckled by the Brits. The base of operations should also be in a spot where, for sites that are farther away, I can get there on public transportation, whether that's a bus or metro. And if it's a city without great public transportation, I want to be close enough that a cab or Uber ride won't cost me a fortune. Now, the bigger the city, the more potential places that could serve this role. For example, on my most recent trip to New York City, I stayed in the Lower East Side and mostly did things around Lower Manhattan. The time before that, I stayed in Midtown, near Penn Station, and mostly did stuff around Midtown and Central Park. In D.C., there are multiple areas that could serve this role, and I have a guide with 11 potential areas to choose from. On the other hand, when I went to Cork, Ireland years ago, there really was just one potential spot for a base of operations, and that was the city center. Since Cork is a small city, there weren't a lot of hotels, and they were mostly concentrated in one area so it made the decision easier. Now, when it comes to the hotel itself, like I said, I'm not currently loyal to any brand, but I do try to look at mid-range hotels and up. The room type I pick usually depends on how long the trip is going to be. If it's just going to be a quick weekend trip, two nights, I usually just pick the most basic room. If it's a longer trip, say five or more days, I might upgrade to a nicer room, especially if it comes with extra amenities. On that trip to Cork, Ireland, I upgraded to a deluxe room, which at this hotel meant a room on the top floor with access to the executive lounge on that floor. The executive lounge had things like snacks and desserts and coffee available all day. I don't believe this one had any alcohol, but sometimes these types of lounges do have very basic beers and wines. This actually was a huge perk because on days when I had a dinner reservation, if I was getting hungry a little beforehand, I could just pop over to the lounge for a quick snack rather than have to suffer until dinner. Okay, so the one thing I haven't talked about yet when it comes to hotels is price. 
What makes a quote-unquote good price depends entirely on the destination. In New York City, $250 per night might get you just a pretty basic room, whereas in Bangkok, Thailand, $250 might get you a room at one of the fanciest hotels in town. And that's something I try to understand going in, because if you have a number in your head and no flexibility, you might wind up making a poor choice. For example, if you're traveling to New York City and my max is, say, $200 per night and not a penny more, it's going to seriously limit my number of choices. One thing I always make sure to do is book my hotel direct. If you haven't heard it yet, I have an entire podcast, episode 32, on this topic, so I won't go into depth, but you should listen to that episode if you haven't, and always book direct. Now, I promised I would explain why I don't use Airbnb, so let's get into that now. It's not that I've never used Airbnb. I've used it exactly three times. And based on those experiences, plus a whole bunch of other stuff I know about Airbnb from working in the travel industry, I do not personally use it anymore. Let me walk you through my three stays, and hopefully you'll see why. My first Airbnb stay was in 2015 on a weekend trip to Maine. This one actually worked out just fine. The place I stayed was a condo just outside of the downtown area. And it was a situation where the owners actually lived in the condo and they rented it out on the weekends while they were out of town. Exactly how Airbnb was envisioned in the early days. So they left on Friday morning. I arrived on Friday afternoon, stayed in their place for three nights, and then left on Monday morning and they arrived home on Monday night. The Airbnb was their actual two-bedroom condo. So the owners locked their bedroom door and I stayed in the guest room. Everything about it was perfectly fine and gave me the confidence that maybe this concept was the future of travel. My second Airbnb stay was later that year. This one was in San Francisco and was with my family, so there were four of us in the apartment. This Airbnb had very different vibes. The host was someone with a whole bunch of Airbnb listings in a bunch of different cities, which I found weird and kind of a red flag. I almost never interacted with this person, only to tell them that I arrived and the lockbox code worked. The apartment was one of those small San Francisco apartment buildings where there are four floors and each floor is its own unit. This one definitely felt like no one was living there full time and it was a permanent Airbnb. One night I heard the person who was staying in the basement level apartment talking in the little outdoor space behind the building and he said he was staying at an Airbnb too. Now, nothing bad happened during this stay. It was perfectly fine even if the apartment felt cold and sterile and not very comfortable. But this was also during the time period when cities were starting to realize that turning houses and small apartment buildings into pseudo-hotels might not be a great thing, and were starting to crack down. I don't know if San Francisco was cracking down at that time, but they definitely would be soon enough. And that's the main thing I don't like about Airbnb. I'm a stickler for the rules. I don't want to stay at a place where I'm actually not allowed to be. As a traveler, it's nearly impossible to tell when you're browsing Airbnb which are legal and which are not. Which leads to my third Airbnb stay. This one was in Dublin, Ireland in 2017. As soon as I arrived at this one, I got bad vibes. The place just wasn't nice. The carpet was dirty. There was weird water damage in the bedroom. The shower never got hotter than lukewarm. And it was right above a convenience store and it smelled bad. Based on some of the posters in the lobby and near the elevator, I suspected that this was also one of those buildings with apartments reserved for low-income families. But being in another country, I really didn't know what the deal was. 
What really turned me off from Airbnb is what happened the last night before my flight back to the U.S. I guess someone had a cooking mishap in one of the apartments and wound up setting off the fire alarm in the building. I went outside, as you're supposed to do when a fire alarm goes off. The fire department arrived, but for whatever reason, was struggling to get into the building. So I helped them get inside and upstairs so they could check it out. Turns out it was a false alarm, so eventually they left. Before I headed out for dinner, I thought I would send a message to the host and let them know what happened. I thought I was being helpful. So it was kind of a shock when their response was not, are you okay, are you safe, but rather, who did you talk to? What did you tell those firefighters? Obviously, they were more worried about saving their own butts than making sure that their guests were actually okay. And that really left a bad taste in my mouth. There's one more I feel like I have to mention, even though it didn't happen to me. A couple of months ago, someone sent me a link to a YouTube vlog because they knew how I felt about this. Long story short, the vlogger in this video was renting an Airbnb in New York City and came home one day to a letter taped on the door that basically said, you haven't paid your rent in 14 months, so this is your notice to vacate the apartment. The vlogger immediately called Airbnb and correctly explained that she did not feel safe staying there anymore. The scene that came next nearly made my head explode. Instead of canceling the reservation, apologizing profusely, and helping her find a new place to stay elsewhere, Airbnb customer support made her get on the phone with the host and try to negotiate with that person directly. I could barely believe my eyes and ears as I watched the phone call between them and the fact that this host, who was clearly abusing the eviction moratorium in New York City and almost certainly renting on Airbnb illegally, was still trying to negotiate to keep this person's money. I even left a comment on that video, something I rarely do on videos of folks I don't subscribe to, because it was really almost unbelievable and I felt like I had to chime in. That's the kind of worst-case scenario that I'd never want anyone traveling to D.C. to get mixed up in. And the unfortunate reality is that there are plenty of illegal Airbnbs in D.C., so the chances that it could happen here are greater than zero. Okay, so enough about Airbnb. I don't like it personally, and I don't recommend it, but I know lots of people are more than happy to take the risk, and that's up to you. There is always some risk that something is going to go awry when you travel, whether you stay at the Ritz-Carlton or the Hampton Inn, or Airbnb. It's just far more likely something will go wrong in an Airbnb, and I've heard some stories from my tour customers over the years that have shaken my confidence in Airbnb. Now, we've covered research, we've covered flights, and we've covered accommodations. So let's get to my favorite part of the whole process, planning out tours, meals, and activities. I've been a tour guide for almost nine years at this point, and one of the best things I've learned from being a tour guide is that tours are absolutely the best way to experience new places, and if you pick the right tours, worth every penny. I'm not going to lie, though. Before I became a tour guide, I was very much a person who tried to DIY everything on my trip. My logic was, why pay money for a tour when I can just wander around and see stuff on my own? It's how a lot of people travel, and I hope I can convince you, having been that person in the past, that it's just not the same. Now, how many tours I take on a trip depends entirely on how long my trip is. On that week-long trip to Edinburgh, Scotland, I signed up for five tours. On my recent weekend trip to New York City, I signed up for two tours. If it's my first time in a city, I always try to do at least one highlights tour and one food tour. Now, depending on how big the city is, a highlights tour might be the highlights of one neighborhood or one part of the city. 
It might not be the whole place. You cannot do a single highlights tour of New York City, for example, because it's just too huge. On the topic of highlights tours, a lot of people assume that a highlights tour means a bus tour. It doesn't. I actually don't do bus tours, and I'll explain why in a moment. A highlights tour could be on foot, on bike, or even on public transportation. It doesn't need to be comprehensive, but it should include primarily sites of major importance. In D.C., I would consider a Triphex DC Monuments tour a highlights tour. It doesn't include every single major site. We don't go up to Capitol Hill, for example, but it does include all of the major monuments and memorials, which are all significant and important sites. And it's on foot, which is actually one of the most efficient ways of seeing them. One of my all-time favorite highlights tours was a bike tour I did in Bangkok, Thailand. Now, if you've been to Bangkok, you might think that a bike tour sounds completely nuts. And in many ways, it was. But that's also why it's such an amazing memory. The combination of going into the famous temples, shopping at neighborhood markets, and somehow navigating the wild Bangkok traffic, all while riding on what, to me, was the opposite side of the street, was really something. Another highlights tour I really liked was London by Bike. I loved that London has so much amazing green space and parks that made for a really easy and nice bike ride. And of course, we got to see Westminster Abbey, Buckingham Palace, the Houses of Parliament, and Trafalgar Square. Could I have wandered around and found all of those on my own? Probably. Would I have learned as much? No. Would it have been as memorable of an experience? Definitely not. I also really dig food tours when I travel. On my most recent visit to New York City, I did a Scott's Pizza Tour, which is a specialized food tour, and it was awesome. But I think my all-time favorite food tour was Eat Walk Edinburgh. My tour guide was the owner of the company, Alan, and he took us around to sample all the famous Scottish foods. We got to drink Scotch whiskey and local beer, and honestly, just hanging out with Alan for three hours was worth the money. When you're traveling to a new place, there's something about hanging out with a local that really gives you a better sense of that place. Alan told me about growing up in Scotland, his career, and what it's like to live there now. It was very much like a Trip Hacks DC tour in the sense that the tour guide isn't just a college kid with a summer job. It was someone who really wanted you to fall in love with the city. So yeah, the food was all delicious, but the experience is what sticks in my memory. Now, once I've done my highlights tour and my food tour, I start to look for niche tours that look interesting. On that trip to London, I did the Liquid History London Pub Tour, which was a ton of fun. We went to, I think, four different pubs, learned the history of the neighborhoods around them, and had a beverage at each. I'm always a little wary about tours that involve drinking or alcohol, because some people just use them as an excuse to get drunk, and that's not all that fun to me. But this one was on a weekday in the middle of the day, so I figured it was probably okay. And it was. Drinks in the UK also tend to have lower alcohol than here in the US. I really enjoyed that tour. Another tour I really liked was called Invisible Cities in Edinburgh. I actually learned about this one from the Tourpreneur podcast. If you recall, I had the host of that podcast, Shane, last year talking about tours that he likes. Hidden Cities is a social enterprise. The tour guides are individuals who have been affected by homelessness and really have some of the most incredible stories and are just incredible people. I think in many ways the tourism industry really needs to have a reckoning with how we think about and talk about people who are experiencing homelessness in our own cities. Invisible Cities is really doing a great job in breaking down stigmas and making a positive impact. 
It's also the kind of tour you'd probably never find if you only use the big booking websites like TripAdvisor and Viator. Unfortunately, those websites are completely dominated by big corporate tours, and you miss many of the gems. Which is a nice segue into my process for how I choose tours. Unfortunately, there are far too many great tours in every city than I have time to do. I really wish I could do them all, but with limited time, you do have to choose. I think a lot of people don't appreciate how important it is to choose good tours. It can be the difference between an experience that makes you want to come back for a second trip and an experience that is completely meh. For me, the most important thing is that the tour company should be a local company. Sometimes it can take a little work to figure this out, especially if you aren't familiar with the industry. One simple thing to look for is, when you go on the tour company's website, is there a list of several or even dozens of different cities that they operate in? If there is, I close the tab and move on to the next one. It's the dream of a lot of tour company owners to build an empire of tour companies all over the world. Heck, people even ask me sometimes, when am I going to open TripHacks New York City or TripHacks Chicago? And the truth is, you don't want me to. I don't live in New York City. I don't live in Chicago. I love visiting those places, but I don't know what makes them tick. I don't know what it's like to live there. I could not give you the same experience in any other city than I can in Washington, D.C. I haven't gone wrong yet by sticking to local companies. In many ways, this is similar to the question of where to eat when you travel. When you arrive in a new city, do you want to try the local restaurants and the local cuisine? Or do you want to go to the same chain restaurants that you know from back home? My hunch is that most people want to try something unique that they can't get anywhere else. Why would this be any different for tours? That said, I know the owners of those big corporate chains will say things like, well, even if the tour company isn't technically locally owned, the tour guides are all locals. And to me, that's like saying the McDonald's is a local restaurant because the person flipping the burgers lives nearby. Okay, so obviously I like locally owned tours and dislike the chain companies. But the question is, how do you find them? And I'm going to admit, it's not always easy, but it is possible and worth the effort. If you use websites like TripAdvisor, you have to scroll past the first page of results because page one is just going to be a bunch of the big chains that paid to be there. On TripAdvisor, there's actually a link on the side that's very difficult to find that says, see all tour operators. And when you click that, it gives you a list of companies sorted by best reviews. Inevitably, the big bus tours that were previously on the top go away, and you can actually see the best tour companies in town, many of which will be locally owned. I hate that they make it so hard to do this, and I'm sure the vast majority of people never figure out how to do it, but that is how you can do it. Now, once I've identified the tours I want to take and figured out which dates to put them on my itinerary, I always go to the tour company's own website and book it direct. Again, you can listen to episode 32 for a detailed explanation as to why. I want to mention a few types of tours that I don't do when I travel. The first, like I mentioned, is a bus tour. I don't like bus tours because, in a best-case scenario, you have one tour guide for an entire busload of customers. That's not a good experience. For the best tour experience, a tour guide should not have more than, say, 15 people. Ideally, not more than a dozen. And that's if your bus has a human tour guide at all. In 2021, Big Bus replaced their live tour guides in New York City and D.C. and possibly elsewhere with an audio recording. 
This actually infuriates me because I think once you get rid of your live tour guide, it's misleading to sell your bus ride as a tour. At that point, where it's a bus and a recording, it's just transportation. And there are a lot cheaper methods of transportation for getting around. That said, I don't want to seem ableist, and I am fully aware that not everyone is physically able to do a walking tour, or a bike tour, or even a Segway tour, so bus tours still have their place. I am privileged enough to be physically able to choose from many different types of tours. So if you do want to do a bus tour, my plea is that you consider a local operator if there is one, and always, always ask if there is a human tour guide on the bus. Another type of tour that I do not do is the free walking tour. A lot of companies that run these pivoted from calling them free tours to pay-what-you-wish tours. The truth is that these were never free. There was always an expectation that you tip your guide at the end. But free is good marketing, so I understand why they sold them this way for as long as they did. The reason I don't like these tours is because the group sizes get huge. Remember, I said that once you get more than about a dozen people per tour guide, the experience starts to deteriorate. And it's not uncommon for free tour groups to have 20, 30, or even more customers for a single tour guide. When I went to Edinburgh in January, I saw free tours with over 20 people on them. And January is squarely in the off-season over there, so I cannot even imagine the situation during peak season in the summer. I much prefer to buy a ticket for a regular paid tour and know exactly what I'm getting into. But you can see why group sizes get so big. It's a volume game. The more people on the tour, the higher the likelihood of making decent money. And when I say decent, I mean decent. I've never known a tour guide getting rich giving these types of tours, even when they are amazing guides. But that's all I'm going to say about these tours. They exist in almost every big city, so obviously the model is still working well enough, and I'm sure for some folks they're a great option, but they're just not for me. Okay, now while all tours are activities, not all activities are necessarily tours. The activities I pick depend on the destination, obviously. On that trip to Edinburgh, one activity was to visit the Edinburgh Castle. If you're going to a museum-centric city, I would put museums on my activity list. For example, London is similar to Washington, D.C. in that there are many amazing museums and often for free. The last few times I've gone to New York City, I saw a show. Not a Broadway show, but another show at a smaller theater. In Las Vegas, I've gone to comedy shows and Cirque du Soleil. Sometimes these are big tourist must-do things. Other times, they're just things I found or heard about that sounded fun. Okay, let's move on to food and restaurants, because I know for a lot of people, this is one of, if not the most important things on the trip. And I have to say, this is hard. Like, really hard. Because for most destinations, especially big cities, there are far more amazing restaurants than you could ever squeeze into a single trip. There are currently 66 Michelin-starred restaurants in London. On a 10-day trip, assuming you eat lunch and dinner at one of them every single day, you wouldn't even get through a third of the list. And that's only the cream of the crop. A big city like London is going to have literally hundreds of great restaurants. You simply will not be able to try them all. Which is why it's a little frustrating when people ask me, What's the one restaurant in D.C. we have to try? Because there's not a single best restaurant. Maybe if we were out in the country and there were only five restaurants in town, there would be one that's obviously the must-do, but in a big city, that's just not the case. This is a big reason why I'm really into food tours when I travel to a new city. Every city usually has a signature dish, or some signature dishes, 
and a food tour will give you a chance to try them all in one go. For example, that food tour I did in Edinburgh had Scottish smoked salmon, black pudding, wild boar sausage, Scottish cheeses, haggis, and neeps and tatties. The places we visited weren't the fanciest restaurants in town, but they were all excellent anyway. And in one go, I got to try basically all of the local signature dishes. The other challenge with restaurants is that the scene is constantly changing, and I can't overstate how critical this is. New places are opening, old places are closing, chefs come, chefs go, the best chefs move on and open their own restaurants or pursue new projects. You can't rely on restaurant resources that are out of date. And by out of date, I mean more than a year or two old. So asking a friend who visited a destination five years ago for restaurant recommendations isn't a great idea. They might have had a great meal, but that restaurant might have lost its luster in the years since. Or a new amazing place might have opened up that obviously they didn't try. Asking other tourists for restaurant picks means you might wind up picking a place that's a tourist trap cleverly disguised as a great local spot. In D.C., founding farmers kind of is like this. Tourists love it, and some locals like it too, but few locals would go out of their way to say it's a top restaurant. In Las Vegas, there are restaurants from seemingly every celebrity chef out there, but the thing is, it's not like Gordon Ramsay himself is in the back cooking your beef wellington, even if his name is on the door. Las Vegas locals tend to not go to these types of places for a reason. I always try to look for a locally produced guide for the city published that year. In big cities, these are easy to find. For D.C., Washingtonian Magazine has a best restaurants guide every year. As much as I love Anthony Bourdain, I'm sorry to say that most episodes of his shows are old enough now that you can't really use them for individual restaurant picks. They're still great for other reasons, though. Restaurant guides will have dozens or hundreds of choices. So at the end of the day, sometimes you just have to pick a few and roll with it. I try to see which of the top-rated restaurants are near where I'm staying to minimize how far I need to travel to get there. Another thing I sometimes do is look for restaurants that have chef's tasting menus. I love chef's tasting menus because it eliminates the risk of buyer's remorse. When a restaurant has a big menu, you always worry about picking the right thing, and you always wonder if you could have ordered something better. But with a chef's tasting menu, there is no choosing. It's just whatever the chef serves you. Plus, any restaurant with a chef's tasting menu is likely to be pretty top-notch. And don't feel like you have to decide on every single meal in advance. Some memorable meals I've had during trips were places that I just walked past, made a note of, and went back later. On a trip to Paris, I ate most of my meals this way, even though Paris is one of those big cities with countless choices. If you are going to take a food tour at the beginning of your trip, ask your tour guide what their favorite restaurants are. It's important to ask what their favorites are, not what the best restaurants are, because most tour guides, including me, haven't been to all the restaurants, so we can't really judge what's the best. But everyone has their personal favorites, and most tour guides are happy to share. So the bottom line is that I try not to stress out too much about restaurants. I accept going in that I'm going to leave without trying a bunch of the best places, and I'm okay with that. As long as the places I do go to are good memories, that's what's the most important. Okay, and one last thing I want to talk about is miles and points. Miles and points are often touted as one of the greatest travel hacks where you can allegedly travel the world for free. And since I'm all about trip hacks, people sometimes ask if I use them. Now, I do think miles and points can be a useful travel tool, and I do use them myself but not for everything. 
And I also don't think they're a magical tool that you can use to travel the world for free like some of the boosters make them seem. I have two travel reward credit cards, the Chase Sapphire Reserve and the American Express Gold Card. These both have annual fees and they are not great for everybody. Let me just say that off the bat. I mostly redeem points for airfare as that's usually the easiest and highest value redemption. I almost never redeem points for hotels. The most important thing to understand is whether there are any restrictions that come from booking with points, or even if there are benefits from using points. For example, if you book a flight on Southwest using Southwest points, that flight is 100% refundable, because if you cancel, you just get your points back, which is way better than paying in cash, because the cheapest fares only give you credit back. Anyway, I'm not going to go too in-depth on this topic, other than to say yes, I sometimes book flights with points, but that no, you don't need them to travel. If you are interested in hearing my thoughts about this, send me a tweet or head over to triphacksdc.com and click the contact button and let me know. I have a lot of thoughts about miles and points, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but I don't want to bury that at the end of this episode. Okay, so to tie this all together, this episode was a roundup of how I, Rob, a Washington, D.C. tour guide, travels using the things that I've learned from being a tour guide and working inside the industry. At the end of the day, there is no right or wrong way to travel. I hate when people make others feel bad for traveling in a way that they consider wrong. The thing is, when you travel enough, you're going to make some mistakes. Trust me, I've made plenty of them when I've traveled before becoming a tour guide. I don't feel bad about any of those mistakes. I'm just happy that I discovered a better way. And that's what I hope happened in this episode. You don't have to copy my process exactly. And maybe there's something you heard along the way that caused a light bulb to go off in your head. Maybe you'll research hotels before booking your flight next time. Or maybe you'll sign up for your first ever food tour from a local tour company. Whatever it is, I'd love to hear about it. So send me a tweet or a DM or email and let me know. Since I don't have a guest, I'll go ahead and wrap this up by plugging TripHacksDC. If you liked this episode, there are over 30 other podcast episodes right now that you can listen to. And as of recording, there are almost 200 TripHacksDC videos on YouTube. And during COVID, I started doing live walks around the city. So feel free to tune in and join me for any of those. And of course, when you actually do come to DC, if you want to sign up for one of my TripHacksDC private tours, you can head over to TripHacksDC.com and sign up there. And before I go, as I often say, enjoy your trip. Thanks for listening to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. To see the show notes from today's episode, get additional resources for planning your trip, or to book a Trip Hacks DC guided tour, visit triphacksdc.com.